Welcome to this special edition of the Trumpet Guru's Hang. It's all about chop problems. <laughs> Just hearing those words, well, it sends shivers down the spine of amateur and professional players alike. The thought of not being able to play the trumpet is something that creeps around in the deepest and darkest parts of our minds. Now, well, most of the time, it's an irrational fear, but sometimes, well, the fear is very real. Now, the question is, is it possible to come back from chop problems? Well, unfortunately, sometimes the answer is no, but often the answer could be yes, but only if you know where to look for help. Well, recently, I've had several guests on The Hang who have not only recovered from a potentially career-ending problem, but have used that experience to become even better players in the process. So let's start with my hang with Brian Davis as he talks about his recovery and the lesson that he learned through the process. 15 years ago now, 16 years ago now, I got to the point where I busted my face up playing the hard way so badly that I was at the point of probably needing to quit playing. Wow. And at the time I was doing uh, a show I did for several years, which was uh, it was called variously the Rat Pack Live from Las Vegas or the Rat Pack Live at the Sands when we did it over here in the States. And I, I joined, I signed on to that show in 2004 for a four month run. And in April, May of 2004 for a four month run. And I finished doing it five and a half years later. it was super fun to play and I loved that show and had the greatest time we travelled all over the place but um, when I started out I was the second trumpet player and after a couple of years um, elevated to being the lead player and that went pretty good for a few months and then we started doing the US tour and all of a sudden they were just bringing me in the rhythm section and doing local hires and we didn't have our band around us. Um, and yeah, uh, all of a sudden I realized I didn't really have what it took to play that whole lead book eight times a week and make it sound convincing. So I got in trouble pretty quickly there and it was, um, yeah, the third weekend we were in, um, West Palm Beach, Florida. I'll never forget. And it was the uh, probably the second show of the week, third show of the week. And I, I had a rough time in the, earlier in the summer. I should give the full context of the story. Uh, we'd been playing in England and we were playing close to where I lived at the time in Leeds. And so I was commuting every day. I was driving over to Manchester, which was a 45 minute to an hour drive. So I was staying at home for the first time in a long time. And we're playing our eight shows over there and then we were playing somewhere else nearby the following week. So I was, I was home basically for the better part of a month. And because I showed back up, everyone's like, oh, great, Brian's back. We can do all those projects we've been putting off because he's been gone for so long. And so I was playing eight shows a week and just absolutely chock-a-block playing things in the day, on the off day, driving every day. So little sleep too much playing and I was already busting myself open to play what I was playing. And so I cut my lips up so badly during the first week of this kind of three week period of hyper busyness that it was just wide open. I had a big open kind of wheel on my lip. There was no doubt where the mouthpiece sat because that was what it was. It got to the point where it wouldn't bleed anymore. Uh, It was, 
you know, it was just a big open thing. And I had, you know, no means to sub it out. And so I kept plowing on through and I got everything done. And then got to the end of that and had a few weeks off. We had a break. And I came on vacation and I took two or three weeks off the horn and let everything heal up and then kind of eased myself back in for a week and got going again and showed up on the road. And that's when we started this US tour. And we're running backwards and forwards. We're doing two weeks in the States, two weeks in Europe, going backwards and forwards. And I'm doing all of this stuff, all of this traveling. And we showed up. It was the second trip out. We were in West Palm Beach, Florida. It's the second night of the week. And halfway through the first set, second set, halfway through one of the sets, my lip went ping and opened back up to how it had been a few months before in the summer in one fell swoop. And when I say it went ping, it made an audible noise over the sound of a shout chorus. Uh. But the second trumpet player went, what was that noise? And looked and what happened to you? Because I had blood flowing down my shirt. <laughs> it, was, it was not pretty. That was not pretty. And I was, you know, I kind of gently got my way through the rest of that week. And then the following week and managed to kind of mitigate some stuff and really go easy. But I was, you know, I was at the point where I realized, you know, that's, that's not going to work. I'm evidently not doing something quite right here because you're not supposed to hurt yourself that bad. You know, we all, we all kind of live with this feeling that there's a, a certain acceptable level of pain that goes with playing the trumpet. Um, but what I've learned over the years is actually that acceptable level is zero. If we're hurting ourselves and we're really like damaging ourselves to the point where it hurts when we cut something or we really feel bruised or battered or whatever that is, we're not doing it quite right. And so that's what we need to actually mitigate and figure out and deal with. Now, I was very fortunate. I managed to get a hold of Roger Ingram. We were coming up to New York for a break week. He was still in the city at that time. He to Chicago five or six years later. Um, but he was still in New York at that time. And through one of the guys on the gig one week, actually, I managed to get a hold of his phone number, called him up and went and took a lesson. It was a day before Thanksgiving in 2006. And sat with him for two hours and showed him what I was dealing with. And, you know, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I see what's up. Gave me a, you know, told me exactly what I needed to do. It was completely contrary to everything I'd always been told. Um, but I needed to hear it. And I knew that I needed to hear it because I was in such bad shape. And that's the thing. Sometimes with those things, you need a convincer to realize that something's not right. I had two convincers. My face was in really bad shape and it was really upsettingly painful to play and then i sat in a small practice room in a studio in new york with roger ingram four feet across a small room from me pinging double d's in my face with that extraordinary characteristic sound of his and i was like well yeah that that'll work i'll do that that'll be fine yeah. <laughs> you know and so I was really in a position to want to take what he had to say to me on board and really actively try it. And it worked really well for me. So, you know, when I went back to see him, when the road took me back close enough, it was about eight months later, I showed up. He said, okay, did you practice everything? 
you know? And I said, yeah, sure, I've been working on it. It's been going real good, you know, thanks. Okay, show me. And he's like, oh, you're the one who actually did the work. Look at that, you know? Because as I know for myself, sometimes people aren't ready to hear it. And so you say, this is what you need to do, you know? If you deal with that, everything will start to work out better for you. And they go, no, it's too different. Don't want to. And they stick with what they were dealing with before. And so, you know, some improvements may get made, but others don't. I was in a position to need to do that. So I really wanted to do that. And so I did it and it worked out great. And I, you know, all of a sudden I don't get hurt playing gigs, you know, playing the horn. Unless I, you know, really have a 10 hour day or something like that. And then you feel it a little but. You know, it doesn't cause me any pain to play. I had a fist on my range and, you know, life is good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it all sounds good to me. So. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but like I say, in that situation, you've got to, you've got to really appreciate the source of, you know, what's being told to you. Yeah. That was exactly the right person to, to tell me that I knew he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. yeah, he knows know, it. Was... He can certainly show it. I mean, yeah, exactly. That, you know, exactly. I've, I've been in a room, you know, I've, I've done a, a, a number of lessons with Roger and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it can be somewhat intimidating. To, you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, Holy cow. How's he doing that? Well, that's, yeah. but that's why I'm there because he can do it. And I want to find out what he knows. Sure. And then he goes on to tell you exactly what he's doing. It's just whether you can get the context of it or not. And that's where, you know, you know, we can all many different, you know, of us can tell different people, different things, but sometimes, sometimes someone says it in just the right context that the person gets it. Yeah. And so the way he explained it to me, once he put the context straight, really made sense. And so I went ahead and did it and it worked. Mm-hmm. You know, the information's all there. It's the context that gets lacking. And that's something I think is really important to all of us. Yeah. And I think the important thing you said there is that, you know, you have to be ready to receive the information, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that sometimes it's that, that you have a mental block. And I'm not saying you, I'm just saying, you know, the, sure. the, collective, no, rhetorically. the, collective, sure. the collective we, uh, yeah, there's a mental block and we just, you know, uh, whether it's ego or whatever, you know, there's something that, that's preventing us from actually listening. And then sometimes mm-hmm. it's just that there's, there's a missing component, you know, all the, all the information is, is being presented, but there's a concept that we're just, we're just not quite, we haven't caught on yet. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And once that one piece is put in then everything else falls into place and it's like sure. oh, the world just opens up to you so mm-hmm. yeah that, that's really cool um yeah i mean i'm a big believer in um like the the in terms of like change when we, when we need to create change we either do it through uh change by default or change by design change by default is when the situation dictates that you must change so mm-hmm. in the case of us players you know when some when when shit goes wrong, that's when you got to change if, if you want to yeah. keep playing. Uh, but then there's the, and that's where most of us find ourselves, you know, is, is that we don't change anything until it actually is usually until it's, it, it's late in the game. And we could have mm-hmm. mitigated a lot of these things if we had yeah. been proactive in our, our diagnosis and our, our way of approaching playing. But then the people who change by design, those are the people who are actively looking for information and actually experiment, you know, actively experimenting with what they're doing to try and find a more efficient 
way of doing things uh, in terms of the efficiency and the consistency. I think those are the two yeah. things. So, I mean, do you find yourself in, in that kind of world now that you've gone through this, uh, you know, drastic change that you had to do, or are you kind of uh, very conscious of, of trying to find, you know, subtle ways of tweaking what you do to, to make sure that you stay on top of your game? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I keep coming back to the word context, but even before that time, I mean, I, I knew that there was obviously a better way I could play, but I'd done that for years and years. And I was actively following, you know, really checking out different methods and things like that and talking to different people as I went around and, you know, taking lessons with folks or talking to colleagues on the bandstand and all that kind of stuff. And, really actively trying to do something better and getting tips where I could find them. But until it was put in the con in the context of the fact that what I essentially didn't understand what I was supposed to do with was breathing and how air was supposed to work. So everything I was reading and learning was through the lens of my fundamental misunderstanding of what that was. So it worked to a certain extent. It made me stronger here or more flexible there or something like that, you know. But then, once I got turned on to what I was supposed to be doing with my air, everything slotted into place. And I was like, huh, that's what everyone else was talking about all this time. You know, so I'm always dealing with things like that. And I'm always checking out different people's methods and, you know, different parts of the pedagogy and all that kind of stuff to try and figure out how I can make myself better, how I can better contextualize things for my students, you know, find a different way to coming around, coming around to it. If someone isn't understanding what I'm trying to get them to do, you know, and so I'm constantly messing with that stuff. That's what I do all the time. I like Brian, many of us suffer injuries that are caused by overplaying. But the underlying truth is that more often than not, the real problem is an improper approach to sound production. And way too often, teachers don't have the right tools or insights to help young or struggling players. So let's check in with Mike Sailors, who has not only had to find solutions for his nearly destroyed chops, but has now made his discoveries a pivotal part of his teaching career. I met Rich when I was um, during, doing my master's degree at Michigan State, and um, I was having like career-ending job problems. Um, mm. And uh, so when I went to go see him initially, it's because I was reading things that he was writing online um, about Reinhardt and how you know Reinhardt was really about taking broken down trumpet players and then you know fixing them which is what was what did i was what i was experiencing i mean i really i couldn't play like a c in the staff you know it was i would go to play and it just would be air uh, and it would hurt when i played so i did um i moved to michigan to do my master's degree at michigan state and during my undergrad i was a lead player and trying to learn how to play jazz but not really a great jazz player but i could play the trumpet when i was in my undergrad I wasn't a great trumpet player. I wasn't a great musician, but I could play high notes and I could play loud and all that stuff. So when I got out of school, um, I started working, you know, professionally and I did some cruise ship stuff and was playing in some 
bands around North Carolina. And I started just injuring my top lip a lot. And uh, it got to the point where when I relocated to Michigan, it just, my top lip just gave out, you know, it just stopped. Um, I stopped doing anything, you know? So I, when I found Rich when I, during the first lesson I had with him, I, I literally couldn't play, you know? And he would probably tell you the same. I, I just, it was just air, you know? And by the time I left the lesson, I was playing like I wasn't even hurt anymore after that. So, the, you know, the Reinhardt stuff really got me playing again. And then over the course of the last 12 years or so, I've been able to take it and drop some things, introduce other things by taking lessons. I, I studied with Peter Bond for a little bit when I was in New York. And his approach paired with Reinhardt really was the solution for me, you know. Um, and so it's been a long road. I mean, somebody who was smarter probably would have quit uh, <laughs> a long time ago. I struggled a, uh, for a, a long time, but I, I, I do feel like now I've figured something out to where I know when I pick up the instrument, I know what it's going to do, you know, <laughs> whereas it's, I spent a long time um, not know, opening the case and not knowing what was going to happen, whether I was going to be able to play or make the job or not and just struggle and have to hide, you know, so um, Rich and a couple of others, Doug Elliott is a great trombone player who really knows Reinhardt stuff really well. Um, uh, Dave Sheets in New Hampshire. I went and studied with him when I was in Michigan. Those guys really, if it wasn't for those guys, I would have quit. I mean, just no way I would have been able to make a career playing. I just couldn't physically play the instrument. No. But, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's frightening uh, how many people have experienced those sort of situations. And yeah. uh, I guess what, what you, because what you never know is how many people never found the help that they needed to get through yes. those. How, how many guys had have tremendous ideas and tremendous uh, contrib contributions they could make to to the trumpet community, but they just you know got stommy by the fact that they couldn't play anymore. Yeah. Um, so uh, hearing hearing from somebody how you know I had this problem, it was career ending, but. I was able to find a solution that, yeah, you know, things like that give me hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, a lot of people contact me now to take a lesson or two to, because they've read and know about me being able to overcome issues and they're having their own issues. And so I, I tell them all the same thing. If I can figure it out, then like literally anybody can, I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, not that smart of a guy, I don't think. I mean, I've you know, I'm not an idiot, but you know, it, it, the problems I had were so. I mean, I literally just couldn't play the instrument I, after a long time. You know, I was sort of naturally gifted at the instrument when I was a young person, and I, I took to it very quickly. But I spent a long time, like I said, just being able, like not being able to play at all. So if I can figure it out, um, I know anybody can. And the way that I play now, it's not hard to get into your own plan. I, I want to also drop another name that really helped me is Brian Davis, who I know you've had on your podcast. He also helped me tremendously in his approach. And for me, it, uh, when most people who are having issues, they're doing what most teachers tell them to do, which is to put a lot of air through the instrument. And that way, um, some people can 
seem to make it work, but the majority can't. And a lot of my teaching at the university here and in doing uh, private sessions with people who are having problems, it's undoing that very ingrained habit of trying to put a lot of air to the instrument. Um, it's just not a very fun way to play, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and to me, um, I always feel like uh, it, when I have a problem, I want to find the player or the the professional and whatever avenue it is that has had the most trouble. You know, I, I yeah. don't I don't want to talk to the guy that that you know picked it up and was playing double C's and triple tonguing. And I don't either. Before. Yeah, I don't either. They got uh, nothing to teach me. You know, and, and when I exactly and, and and no and no nothing against those people either. You know, there's some people who just they play the instrument so naturally that. You can't tell them what to do because even introducing a thought into their playing process might mess up the thing they have, you know. But I, I, like I said, I tell I, I work with some students here at UT that are uh, not in my studio, but they're in the classical studio. It's the classical side of the school, and there's wonderful players in that studio. Some of them are having really bad trot problems, and um, I tell them all the same thing. You know, it's playing the trumpet; it's deceivingly easy. But everything that you're taught pretty much is goes against um, what efficient trumpet playing is. You know, like the pedagogy, in my, this is my estimation, the 99% of the pedagogy around the trumpet is incorrect, um, which is why there's so many bad trumpet players. You know, it's just, <laughs> there's more bad ones than there is good ones. So, um, so in my teaching at UT, you know, I, I've, I have one student who just graduated who, when he first started studying with me, he like couldn't play above a C in the staff. And so now he just did a senior recital and did all these hard classical pieces and sounded great, you know? So, and it's, I don't think it's because I'm a great teacher. It's just the things that I've learned through my own struggles. I've seen them time and time again work for people just because it takes this sort of machismo thing out of the instrument that is so ingrained in the pedagogy. We have to blow a lot of air to the instrument. We've got to support here. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. It's just not musical, you know. While poor mechanics certainly cause some chop problems, sometimes the issue is the result of circumstances that are beyond our control, things like illness or injury. Now, when it comes to illness, a common but manageable situation is dealing with cold sores. Cold sores are caused by the herpes simplex type 1 virus. And according to the World Health Organization, 67% of the world's population are currently infected. Now, for the average person, cold sores are just a mild annoyance that doesn't particularly impact your life and particularly your ability to work. But for trumpet players, cold sores can make playing near impossible. And that's what nearly happened to my friend, Kenny Robinson. But Kenny not only found a solution that allowed him to maintain his career, but it also became the launching point of his business, Robinson's Remedies. So let's hear from Kenny. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I'm a, you know, I, I was on the road with Maynard Ferguson and everything else. And um, I'll make a long story shorter. I didn't say short. I said shorter. Shorter, yeah. So, so what it is, is um, I'm a lifelong cold sore sufferer. Okay. And, and to a trumpet player, that is a curse. All right. So I was actually going to quit playing trumpet after I got off the road with Maynard. In fact, um, there's a, a story I always tell to people and, and, it, and I should tell it to the trumpet community. Um, I was on the road with Maynard and um, I developed a cold sore, a bad one. Okay. And you can't play with cold sores. I, I mean, you can, if they're over here, or, you know, over here, or over okay. here. But you, you get them, you can get them anywhere. Right. And they're, and they're brought on by stress and all, and you know, what bring, there's different triggers that bring them on for different people. Like, like orange juice and citrus brings them on for me because mm-hmm. it's acidic, you know, right. anyways. So I'm on the road with Maynard and I developed this cold sore after a gig, you know, so we have a couple days off and I'm just starting to panic in my, uh, in my uh, hotel room. And I'm watching Star Wars movies. I remember that. So we, we get to do a gig and uh, we get backstage. And um, before, about an hour before the gig, uh, Reggie Watkins lives in Pennsylvania, lives in Pittsburgh. He was the music director at the time. He's one of our endorsers. Great trombone player. Took me in to Maynard's room to show me my, show him my chops. Mm-hmm. And Maynard says, oh my God, he looks at my chops like this and he goes, Oh my God. Well, if you can't play, you stand up there and smile with us. That's what he said. And you know what? I played and I had, I barely finished the gig. Yeah. But at the end of the gig, Maynard says to me, he says, well, you played the gig. How did you do it? And I said, I just kept moving the mouthpiece around like this the whole day, you know, until, and he goes, well, I don't know how you can play like that, but you sound great. You know what that did for me was that made me, after his death, I miss him very much. And everybody that has been on the road with him or knew him just loved him because he was just the kind of positive guy. He made me, made me think, you know. He had it up here. It's all in your mind. Right. Don't ever, don't quit. Mm-hmm. So I was actually going to quit, <laughs> you know? So I, I actually was, ha- was going to sell my trumpets and say, you know, I, I don't have anything to prove. I've been on the road with Maynard. I had some lessons with Maurice Andre and Bud Herseth. You know, I, uh, I was making a, my last record, uh, a, a record called let the trumpet sound. And it was, uh, and it had a tribute to Maynard on it. So I thought about this way and I was getting cold sores. I got a really bad episode. I said, you know, there's gotta be a better way. So I searched the internet and I met uh, uh, a guy named Stephen Folks, who's a, who's a research, research scientist that wrote a book about it, about how to, you know, how to, how to wipe out uh, herpes. Cause that's what it is. It's herpes simplex one. And people that don't say, oh, I don't have herpes. They're just fever blisters. That's denial. Right. Okay. It is. And I used to be like that too. And when you get one, you look in the mirror and you're like, when's it going away? When's it going away? Every five minutes you're looking in the mirror and you go to the drugstore, you know? So I said, 
there's got to be a way that, so I started uh, mixing different, different ingredients in my kitchen. And I made this little, little, little jar that you get, get at it, like a target or something uh, like a little ballistics jar, except it's clear right. and, and had all these ingredients mixed in. And I used to put it on my lips all the time and my God, it worked. So I used to carry it around with me. So I was talking to Betty, who's our art director, Betty Evans, and um, who's now you know, part of the company and our art director. And she says, let me try it. So I gave it to her and she put it on. She goes, oh, this is awful. Cause it just tastes <laughs> terrible, you know? Right. So, so I, so I was with some colleagues. I was actually at a conference with Jerry Callett, you know, just, yeah. just, just cause I love the guys know me since I was a kid. I miss him dearly. And uh, I was sitting at the bar drinking with Terry Warburton and I was telling him about this and uh, I didn't have to quit playing trumpet because of this little jar of cream I used to just carry around in my case, you know? And he goes, you should, you should get it on the market. Terry Warburton was one of the first guys to tell me that. Yeah. And he goes, uh, so he introduced me to some people and I, I got around, I, I got around and I met a chemist named uh, Amanda Vickers and she said, it does taste like, you know. <laughs> you can say it. <laughs> like shit. It tastes like yeah. shit. You can you say know? it. This is, this is this said, PG-13 or This not? is not PG. This is, this is. Right. It tastes like shit. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. right. So, so what happens is, uh, so. It's HBO. I met, I, I meet, I meet Amanda Vickers, but I said, I want it to be my formula, Amanda. And she's, uh, I said, I sent her this book. And I said, if you don't want to read this book, then I don't want you. You know, basically, you yeah. know, I said, and, and, and she read the book and she said, no, this is a great book. And it's called uh, Wipe Out Herpes with BHT. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, she read it and she said, he makes a really good sense. She said, I think I can make it better. And I said, go for it. And she did. Oh. And it was incredible. And it's, it's our first product. It's called Lip Repair. Another condition triggered by viral infections is Bell's palsy. Now, while cold sores impact the playing surface, Bell's palsy causes the inflammation of the nerves that control the muscles of the face. And while Bell's palsy typically is temporary and doesn't reoccur, it provides special problems for trumpet players, particularly if they try to return to the horn too soon. So let's hear from Craig Kenny about his experience with Bell's and how he was able to return a stronger player than ever. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. Um, I guess it was September of 2019, um, right after I turned 50. Man, it's like that age, and then everything goes down quick. I got sick the following weekend after I turned 50, and I had thrush. And I had it for a couple weeks. Uh, actually, uh, stall, we had some gigs and stuff, and I actually had to end up playing the fourth book because the thrush had my chops so screwed up. Um, I mean, luckily I've had great section players that I, you know, I can trust to fill in. I mean, um, so yeah, I, I moved myself to the fourth book to get through a couple weeks having thrush and, um, it, it got better and it got better. And then all of a sudden in like the third week of October, I wake up and my right side of my face is just hanging and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I thought, well, I probably had a stroke, you know, and sleep or whatever. But um, so 
uh, called my doc to get an appointment. Of course, I couldn't, couldn't get into the later day. So I sat at home, of course, diagnosing myself. It's like, you know, Google this, Google that, Google that. So I became my own doctor. Um, you know, and I kind of figured out it was Bell's palsy before I even went to the doctor. Uh, so the thrush actually triggered the Bell's palsy, which I had no idea. I mean, there's so many things that causes Bell, Bell's palsy, but thrush is one of the viruses that can, you know, affect that. So um went to the doctor and the doctor agreed, you know, it's Bell's palsy, like, yeah, like I'm my own doctor. Um, you know, I was put on some meds and stuff to deal with it. And and he's like, oh, you'll be fine. You live, you live through Bell's palsy. It's no big deal. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm a trumpet player. And I was, you know, wasn't sure how this was going to happen. So the next day, you know, it was one of those things where I started watching videos on Bell's palsy and and other trumpet players, and you know, there's some horrific cases of Bell's palsy that's just eliminated careers. I mean, guys that had it so bad that they never came back from it. So I decided I was going to get on Facebook and put a video of me playing. And at that point, I might have been able to play maybe E in the staff to B, and that was it. Everything else was just air. I mean, I lost all the air out of the side of my mouth. Um, I couldn't play. So I let it go on Facebook, and I'm like, yeah, I whatever, I'll probably get ripped apart, you know, left and right from people on Facebook. And uh, actually it turned out to be the best thing I've ever done because that night into the next morning, all of a sudden I had 300 messages from people all over. Luckily, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people, um, predominant players and stuff. And, you know, they were giving me all this advice on, you know, how to deal with it. And actually there's a local lady to me that had bells. It's a bassoonist and, uh, you know, she's recovered too as well. So, uh, but you know, I got a, a ton of different, you know, directions to go. You know, I was told to do, there's a Feldenkrais exercise. It's where the brain reconnects the muscles, you know, it's facial exercises, basically, you know, I was told, um, acupuncture, which actually acupuncture was nice, <laughs> irregardless. Uh, you know, uh, I was told a whole bunch of other different, you know, uh, things to try to, uh, remedy it. By gosh, a couple of days later, I had two people, Dan Miller and um, Marty Bound from New York. They both gave me Bobby Shoe's number and they're like, you got to call him. He'll get you back. And I hooked up with Bobby and that was the road back. Um, I don't know what I, why well, I owe everything to Bobby. I mean, nothing else really worked. Um, and that was part of the problem because I was trying too many directions. I wasn't focusing on one thing. Cause that was one of the first things Bobby's like, you know, let's stick to this plan because I told him, you know, I was doing this Feldenkrais exercises like, no, 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 get rid of that. You know, don't do that. You know, do his way of doing it to come back and we'll, we'll do it. So what well, first thing was to learn to put the horn away for a bit. So, you know, I took some time off. Um, Bobby gave me some exercises, you know, cheek flutters, you know, doing worn compresses on the cheek, both cheeks actually to keep everything even. Um, after a few weeks, I started uh, buzzing on a trombone mouthpiece. So that started facilitating, you know, the muscles again. Um, and then in a few more weeks, then I started buzzing on a trumpet mouthpiece again. So it was a long process to come back. I mean, it wasn't just snap the fingers and back. Um, but he continued to work with me. And um, I had my first gig back with Stahl about the third week of December that year. 
and it wasn't good. I was passing parts to everybody. I mean, I just, I couldn't play the whole gig on lead. I mean, I, I was, I was still fluttering the cheek and stuff. Um, you know, this was probably about eight weeks after the initial happening. So, um, but Bobby had me to the point where I, I could play again. There wasn't any double C's coming out or, you know, nothing. <laughs> there wasn't any flash out of my bell. That's for sure. Uh, but luckily, like I said, um, my guys in the stall band were always top notch and I could, I could pass part to anybody and know they could cap capably, you know, take it. So, um, at the end of December, probably about 10 weeks in, uh, started playing fairly well again, but I didn't have the endurance. Um, you know, I still felt weakness. I still would wake up. And that's the thing, even to this day, there's some days I wake up with weakness in my right side, which scares the life out of me because every time it happens, I'm thinking, uh Oh, this is going down again. But thankfully it doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, that was, uh, 2020. The last stall big band gig was February. I was, uh, I would say I was about 80% back for that last job because that was it for the band. Um, well, then COVID started anyway. So, um, I continued with Bobby getting help with him. Um, I think it took a solid year to, I really felt comfortable, but everything changed. Um, probably the best thing about dealing with you was, um, and, and starting over to, uh, I respect, um, you know, I eliminated some problems that I had before. Couldn't use the same mouthpiece. The mouthpiece I played felt really small, so I had to find a whole different mouthpiece. Uh, so that worked out in that respect. Um, but I, I continued just to do every, do the protocol, uh, as he calls it, and uh, I practiced every day, um, and I kept going forward. In hindsight, I forgot to also tell Bobby, oh, by the way, I lost about 90 pounds at the same time because that was another <laughs> in looking back, we don't know which was worse. The bells are losing the weight dramatically. So it was probably, I made it probably harder on myself to come back by doing everything. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it was a good year. A after the, the stall band ended, uh, the drummer and I decided we were going to form our own or jazz orchestra. So that summer, even with COVID going on, we did some outdoor gigs in New Jersey and um, I started really feeling back myself, even though I felt like I was a completely different player. I mean, I, even to this day, I don't feel like, um, I feel like I'm a totally more finesse kind of player. I let, you know, the compression do more of the playing than to the big volumes of air or whatever. So, you know, we did some outdoor gigs and uh, things started going well. So, um I, you know, at that point, I think I was starting to play better than I had before, just because I think I corrected some problems that I had uh, that I didn't realize I was doing. Because uh, I'm a more efficient player. I mean, uh, no doubt. I mean, I'm, that was probably the benefit of Bell's palsy is I became a more efficient player. Um, so that's kind of the where, where that whole progress happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, without without you, without Dan Miller and Marty give me his, his number, because again, I was going in a thousand directions trying to take everybody's advice and it was just too much information basically. And maybe something else would have worked, but, um, I went the right direction. Yeah. Well, Bobby is definitely one of the most insightful, uh, teachers that, that I've ever met. 
and the man's just he, he's operating on a different level uh yeah. and yeah I, I i love him to death it's, it's, yeah. that, and just such a great guy just in general you know um he, he he's kind of a no bs guy but oh, yeah but but still you know he just he's he just he he likes to see people make progress and yeah well and, and he told me a friend he's like you're number 27 on my list you're not going to fail <laughs> so um you know he, he was very um very positive in every every aspect and we had good conversations too outside but uh yeah i mean of a of a player of that caliber making you feel that comfortable was really a game changer for me i mean my my attitude since bell is completely different i mean i'm again i was more of, of that competitive player before bells now i'm not i mean i'll pass parts i'll gladly give people parts um and, and I try to support people more than ever. Matter of fact, there's been some people that have had bells now that I've reached out to saying, Hey, I've been through this, you know, I'd, I'd like to help if I can. I mean, I'm not Bobby shoe, but I can help you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, knowing that, uh, someone has, has gone through it. Someone has come through the other side of it. And, um, yeah, that, that's certainly important. Another player who made a comeback from his belt with bills palsy is rich Willie. Fortunately, Rich was already aware of the nature of his problem and knew exactly what to do, and more importantly, what not to do. And for Rich, a big part of his recovering from both illness and injury is to have the right attitude. So let's check out what Rich has to say. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I think what could have been the most traumatizing thing that happened to me was when I had Bell's palsy. And uh, Doc had told me about, Doc Reinhardt had told me about Bell's palsy in probably 1982 or 83. I can't remember when it was, but he talked about a student who had Bell's palsy. So when it came on, I was actually on a, a tour and uh, I had one more night to play and uh, and I ended up you know, going to the hospital, I, I couldn't even, there's no way the, the right side was gone. But uh, I knew that it was Bell's palsy. Uh, they gave me uh, a steroid, I think prednisone, and they gave me acyclovir, a, uh, uh, you know what that is. Oh, man, Andy, what is it? Uh, uh, what is it you take when you have like, uh, I can't, <laughs> I can't remember this word. Men or... Anti-coagulant uh, or no, no, no. Uh, Anti-matter. <laughs> Anti-M. I don't know. Anyway, acyclovir. It'll come to me later, probably right when we turn this thing off. And then when I came back uh, to Asheville, I went to the VA hospital. You know, Army veteran, and uh, and she uh, she affirmed that yeah, that's that's exactly what the guy should have given me. And uh, so fortunately, I mean, within 24 hours, I, I sought medical attention and, uh, it was like January 26th or something. And, uh, I had the, I had, I was supposed to play with Natalie Cole on February 21st and man, you talk about, uh, I, I, like I said, I could have freaked out, but, uh, I figured, you know what, 
let's just, you know, let this play out, see what happens. And I didn't try to buzz my lips. Uh, I didn't try to play because I knew that everything was useless. Uh, but just staying calm and knowing that, you know, like what's the old saying, this too shall pass. I, I just knew that uh, getting all freaked out is, is not going to, it's not going to help anything. I mean, the same thing is going to happen whether I freak out or not. So I just, uh, I was working on a book at the time and I just focused on that. I remember one night my wife says, I can't believe you're not freaking out about this. You know, you can't play, you know, all your life you've wanted to play, you know, trumpet, whatever. And uh, you're not freaking out. So what, what good would it do to freak out? So I think that's really the most important thing is if I have issues to just stay calm, uh, cause you know, getting all like anxiety stricken, uh, is not going to help. And, uh, it was, ah, oh, when did I, that was 2009. I know in, uh, uh, I, I turned out a book called focal point about a year after I turned out, uh, uh, the Reinhardt routines, which was Chris LaBarbera's suggestion, by the way, I, I try to give credit to everybody who's helped because, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, I'm this genius cause I'm really not, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, in, in that book, I quoted this, uh, there's a writer, like an inspirational writer, Mandino, and he had this story called the 12th angel. And, uh, this one little guy, he had this mantra, which was day by day in every way I'm getting better or something like that. And, uh, I just, you know, I, I used to, to make a rhyme out of it, you know, every day in every way I'm getting better and better and better. And, uh, when, uh, the, the whole concept of positive affirmations it's like the self-talk. You've heard of, about the self-talk. If if I'm practicing and struggling and kicking the garbage cans and you know cursing and saying you know I you know suck and all this man that's that's so counterproductive. So I finally learned that it's you know my self-talk reinforces you know the positive thing. Like you know I am getting better even though I'm going through this hard time. I know I'm getting better. You know because uh, there's lessons that I'm learning. You know what what they say uh, uh, an uh, you don't become an expert sailor by always sailing on smooth seas, right? Exactly. You know, you, you got to have those rough seas to become a, an expert sailor. So I think the, the most important thing that I've learned is there's absolutely never any reason to panic or freak out. Uh, you just stay calm and stay focused. And, uh, you know, what you uh, perceive as something that's like devastating at the moment, years down the road, you might realize, man, that's the best thing that could have happened. You know, today I'm, I'm grateful that I had Bell's palsy because, uh, you know, guys who have it, if they come to me, I can help reassure, you know, don't even try to play, man. You know, until you can whistle your lips, don't even, you know, whistle, form your lips to whistle. Don't even think about putting a mouthpiece to your face because all you're going to do is train those muscles that have not uh, sufficient strength to, to come back and, and do anything yet. You're going to train them to do something that's compensating for the fact that they have no strength. So don't do anything, man. Just, you know, relax, go do something else, man. Go bowling. You know, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've had, uh, I've had to recover from a few uh, surgeries that, uh, you know, ran into some, some complications or abdominal surgeries. And that's one of the things, you know, I'd be on a, on a form or something and someone would say, oh, I'm getting a hernia surgery. You know, how, how soon can I start playing? My doctor says this or, you know, somebody... And I, I will chime in and say, look, I'm not a doctor, but I have experienced, you know, six abdominal surgeries over the, the course of the past 10 years. Wow. Here's what I can tell you my experiences are. 
when you feel like you're ready to play, don't. Don't. <laughs> Get yeah. Yeah, these are the things that you want to do. These are the things you want to be careful about. And it's, it's speaking from experience. And what I found is that um, like you're, I'm, I'm huge into the, the motivational space, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I like one of the quotes Tony Robbins uses with, you know, you know, life either happens to you or for you. And I like the idea of learning those lessons and saying, okay, well, here I'm at this point where I can't play. When I come back, what can I do to make my playing better? Yeah, how can I use right. this time more efficiently? And sometimes it's, you know, just getting away from the horn completely i mean i'm not even thinking about it but sometimes it's it's thinking about retooling you know how do you want to approach things how do you want to do things a little bit differently taking time to to uh, search out the resources that you need to to learn uh, a, a more efficient approach so uh yeah i mean um you know we i think we all at some point in our careers uh, whether you're a professional player or amateur player or whatever you're doing, you're going to run into a point where you don't know what to do next. And that's where it's so important to to find people who have uh, have gone on before you and have made the mistakes and had the had the, the negative experiences, but have learned from them and they can share with you a, a better way of, of approaching it. Right. No, absolutely. And that, that thing about whatever the doctor says, man, I would double it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, well, I told you I didn't want to go into it, but uh, a doctor told me to wait six weeks after a uh, an oral surgery before I started playing again. I waited six weeks to the day, and I came back gangbusters. And that's, you know, basically what caused this uh, original lip problem that I had in 1980 or 81, whenever that was. So, yeah. Uh, and trumpet, man, you cannot cram on trumpet. You know, you cannot cram for a gig. You have to spend hours every day or else you're not going to be able to play a gig that lasts hours. And if, if you try to like, I, I, there, there are, you know, there's exceptions. There's guys who don't practice and I hate them all. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I practice every day. And, you know, nowadays I practice tuba, uh, bass trumpet and trumpet. And I'm also uh, learning how to play the EV, the electronic valve instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I practice uh, all of those every day and uh, try to, you know, I, well, tr- simulating a gig in the, the practice room, I think that's like the, the hardest thing. If you're not playing a lot of gigs and you have demanding gigs coming up, to me, that's the hardest thing because my chops, I always have to be ready, you know, for whatever comes up, I got to be ready for it. I can't like at the last minute think, oh, okay, I can spend two days cramming. No, you can't do it. on. I can't do it on trumpet. Overuse, improper technique, health issues. Now, these things can all create chop problems. But what about the thing that we probably fear the most? That's getting hit in the face with a horn on our chops. <laughs> Man, it makes me cringe just thinking about it. Now, our final guest shares his experience on having just that happen to him. And to literally add insult to injury, this therapy only made matters worse. But the silver lining to his ordeal is that he not only found a more efficient way to play, but he's also become a go-to resource for musicians and non-musicians alike. So let's check in with Brad Good. Well, flash forward many years, I'd taken my my first full-time teaching job. I was teaching at the Cincinnati Conservatory and I was practicing whisper tones. Somebody told me practice whisper tones like a flute player. 
and this will get your your response will be the thing you know so um i had my eyes closed i was standing near the large six inch thick uh wood soundproof door of my teaching studio it was ajar somebody opened it into me and bashed my lip same same thing this time the teeth didn't go all the way through but actually my lip kind of went down between my teeth and i kind of bit it uh-huh. and it was so swollen um it looked like i had a ping pong ball in my lip and luckily there was no real tear to my muscle but the doctor said well ice that lip take the swelling down he says you should ice it 10 minutes every hour for a couple days until the swelling is gone it's okay so i was watching television get my ice 10 minutes next hour 10 minutes swelling went down well the doctor didn't tell me don't put the ice directly on your lip which I am telling you, podcast listener people, trumpet players, don't ice your lip. And, and I would say don't ice your lip, period, ever. Because what happened to me was um, I destroyed the muscle tone in my lip and I shrunk the muscle and I turned it to mush. It was like one, one step short of frostbite. And at that point, this was my sound. And that was all I could do. Um, I could not make a, make a tone on a trumpet. And, and so I, I became uh, severely depressed. Um, uh, didn't know what to do about teaching the trumpet lessons I had to teach. I had to cancel all my gigs. Um, after several weeks of, of very bad depression, um, th- my wife found out about Dr. McGrail, Dr. Simon McGrail, who was in Toronto, and he was an ENT, uh, ear, nose, throat doctor, and a plastic surgeon, and a French horn player, who sp- had a specialty practice in dealing with injuries to vocalists and injuries to brass players apparently the only person in the world who did such a thing now he as a plastic surgeon believed that he could do uh, surgeries for people who had torn their lip by playing with a weak embouchure which they call satchmo syndrome um repair it in a way that would heal without as much scarring as the injury itself and make it easier for brass players to continue their careers. Oddly, it's mostly French hornists having these injuries, although it does happen to trumpet players and even more rarely to low brass players, but, but it, does, it does happen. My case was different in that I didn't have a similar kind of injury and I, the injury I basically had was this shrinking of the lip and destroying of the muscle tissue by over icing. The accident itself wasn't that big a deal. And, and um, 
Dr. McGrail had designed physical therapy exercises for the lip where you basically do reps like with the weightlifting principle. Most muscles in your body are designed to adhere and work against a bone or joint. But the lip is a sphincter. It's an oval. And there are three of them in your body. One is here. One is in your glottis. It's the swallowing muscle. And the third is, of course, your, your sphincter. Um, they don't they don't attach. So there's no logical way to rehab a muscle like that. But Dr. McGrail ingeniously thought you would substitute the teeth for bone and do reps of your lifting exercises, pulling your lips against your teeth. And, and I would use various thicknesses of cotton gauze pads these are exercises he designed for his recovering surgery patients. But it, it turned out that since the damage to my muscle was so much greater than it was in people who had playing injuries, I had to do these injuries about these exercises about five times as long to recover as, as his other patients did. In, in the end, one, one of the side stories is um that that um dr mcgrail would often refer his patients to me for help in in learning his rehab exercises since i'd kind of become the guinea pig um and i and i'm still helping people with that um when people have injuries and and they need to recover with physical therapy um in my own playing as I began to get slightly more strength in my lip, I could start to make a little bit of a buzz and there would be a little sound and I could start practicing again. Now, over this long period of time, I did these exercises, which for me was about 18 months. By the way, this was 2001, 2002 when this happened. Uh, so 20 years ago. Um, the... the um, all the things I'd heard about trumpet playing from all these great teachers led me not to be able to play the trumpet at all. Whereas when I started researching other things, I found I could get around and make things happen. So this, the process of, of learning how to play again with no strength in my lip was a kind of a clarifying process for me in weeding through all the information and all the advice I'd gotten from these years of trumpet lessons and seeing what was not helping me and what was. In particular, I went to Clark Terry for help. And Clark helped me quite a bit by first talking about utilizing my corners or my buccinator muscles actively in playing and he taught me how to start doing this but he also said something to me that other people had said which is read reinhardt's book and and donald reinhardt of course was was a a brass teacher a trombonist brass teacher who analyzed hundreds of players 
and found out that there are mechanics involved in manipulating a brass instrument and that depending on your facial structure and your teeth, there are certain movements that make things happen for you. The, the, the movements make things happen for everybody, but you tailor your, your abilities, your movements to your physical setup. And so I studied Reinhardt diligently, and, and I studied with some of his students, um, particularly with Wes Orr, who's a lead trumpet player in Columbus, Ohio. And, and, teachers. Oh, okay. Wes got me on the right track, and eventually I got to Dave Sheets, who, who was a, a great lead player who played in Atlantic City for years, and was maybe the person who studied with Reinhardt over the most number of years. And understanding how things work opened a couple doors for me. The, the first thing is I changed my technical approach to playing. So the happy ending to my sad tale is uh, I never regained the full strength in my lip. I just, I just gained enough to make a buzz. And my lip is not the same shape it was before the icing. It's smaller. Um, the, the, the upside is I completely changed the way I think about having the trumpet work and the idea of understanding the mechanics of the instrument became very important to me. And before the accident, I could, you know, really play up to about a high E flat solidly above high C. I could never play lead. Now I warm up to triple C every morning. First thing I do in my warm up. And uh, I, since the accident, I've been a very busy lead trumpet player, which I kind of always wanted to do, but never had the understanding of the instrument to be able to do. The other thing that happened was Dr. McGrail started sending these patients to me, and I started understanding why so many people were being hurt or injured because they weren't getting instruction on embouchure. They were just getting instruction to say, don't think about embouchure. And, and they, they had muscle failure. Um, so... I became also interested in helping those people relearn how to play after their injuries to prevent further injuries. Well, the, the more I got into this stuff, not only did it benefit my own playing, but I started myself, like Reinhardt had, to study people and make observations and see what I could see. And so this, the last 20 years, has I've had this side interest outside of being a musician and, and being a music teacher, uh, I become interested in understanding the mechanics of embouchure and being able to help people who, who are having the kind of difficulties understanding the trumpet that I did by giving them specific technical, physical advice on the physical aspects of their, their playing, breathing, embouchure, et cetera, um, equipment. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I've entered this other area, but like I, like I said, uh, 
oftentimes people are reluctant to call somebody like me because I'm saying in many ways the opposite things of of what the, these other teachers, we, we call them end result teachers. In other words, the end result is the only thing that's important. Knowing how you get it should be relegated to the unconscious mind. That that seems to be the predominant school of thought in brass teaching today. And so somebody like me who says, no, know exactly how you do everything. How does that Lipsler work? What what exactly are you doing? How can you control it? Um, I, I sound like a nut. And, and they treated Reinhardt like a nut during his, during his lifetime as well. Um, I, ha- I have a, a friend who's who's a, a he's good friend. We love each other. He's a classical trumpet teacher at a major university. Successful performer. He saw the Reinhardt book on my desk. He picked it up. He said, "This is the book I show my students to say, look how complicated brass playing can be made to seem when it's really just simple." And I said to him. That's the book that saved my career. <laughs> so we, we, all, we all need different things at different times. All right, that wraps up this special episode of The Trumpet Guru's Hang. I hope you found this compilation educational and inspiring. If you know someone dealing with chop problems, make sure you share this episode with them. And please make sure that you like and subscribe. And if you have an idea for a future topic, please email me at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. So until next time, peace and slide grease. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.